0: Welcome to the Tech Sales Show, dedicated to making you a better seller. Recorded 4,827 miles across the Atlantic Ocean with Bobby Das from Houston, Texas, a father, husband, golfer, pilot, and tech seller. And Brian Evans, an expat in London, England, family man, 2X Ironman, and an ERP salesman both sharing tried and true sales strategies and providing free tools to make each week and campaign easier for you. They also answer your questions weekly. Now, here is Bobby and Brian.
1: What's up, Brian? Hey, hey, Bobby. Here we are, episode two of Sales Process, our fourth series. Last week, we talked a little bit about everything that we're gonna cover over the next, well, last week and over the next four weeks. Today, we're talking about the two first sales stages, prospect and qualify. Brian, give us a little overview of what we're going to talk about.
0: Yeah, indeed. So, um, prospects, I mean, I think we all look at this as uh, when we when we started talking about the territory plan as part of our second series, we always talked about, you know, we never have enough prospects. We're always looking for more and qualified leads. There's a comma in between there, but more and and qualified leads. Um, so really this episode will be all about how do you uh, build up more prospects? How many is enough? Um, you know, what what kind of events could you do to create some demand gen to bring new prospects into the pipeline? Uh, we're gonna talk about qualify we'll talk about a number of things I, th- I think a lot about qualify in the in the business I'm in and the job I'm in um, you know qualifying your prospects before you engage in a lengthy sales cycle that could be you know sometimes as small as six months to as long as two years for a sales cycle qualifying is incredibly important uh, so that's one that's near and dear to my heart
1: yeah so we'll jump right in and I'll, I'll kind of talk back and, and you talk through with me you know what what do you do each quarter or each year? I kind of go through a a personal process where I'm trying to really help my boss set my quota. I'm still going through that this year. I'm in in month four almost, um, and we're still struggling with that. But the net of it is I I, I go through a process where I take my assigned territory, and, and it's been different many times, right, where I have 200 accounts or I might have six accounts. This year I have had uh, seven accounts, but it's kind of rolled through a, really a total of five at any given time. But I go through a process of call, what I call what's possible. I literally create a spreadsheet called what's possible. And I put every opportunity that I could possibly sell a customer into this spreadsheet with a dollar amount, a realistic dollar amount, right? It's not like I say, well, if I sold them the house in the kitchen sink, it's going to be $17 million dollars. But it's really like if I could get my foot in the door in this work stream or this product line and that they, they really bought it, what would, that, what would that ultimately be worth to my revenue stream? And I put that dollar amount in. And I, I go down the line with literally everything that's possible. Um, and then I try and weight some of it, just gut feel and, and historicals that sort of stuff. And uh, at Microsoft we did a lot around renewals and true ups. That's a great process. And I find out what that overall number is. And then I start talking through with my specialists, my friends, my peers. But that's kind of a a gut pipeline that I start with uh, at a a beginning point of a year and share broadly with my teammates. How do you go about just like figuring out really where to start the process? It's not even, we're like almost even pre-prospect at this point, I guess.
0: Yeah. So I look at it, uh, some similarities, some differences. Uh, Last fiscal year for us, we had territories that were based on postal codes And really, if you break it down, it's more like regions than postal codes. And then when we flipped to the new financial year, we switched it to be more industries. So we got to pick the industries that we wanted to uh, go after. Um, So I got a chance to kind of pick which territory I wanted to go after, which directly aligns to the kind of prospects that I want to be working with. Um, So for me, instead of kind of looking at what our company message was about what industries we're going after i looked at it more as to what success have i had in the past what industries do i enjoy working with what industries have we successfully sold to recently not just kind of what the, what the company message is is what do we have real tangible wins in because i want i want my workload to be focused on those types of customers and then like you said then it's a math equation for me then it's i know again much like what we talked about in the territory plan i know that it's going to take me to get to my number um, I need to have a good 20 opportunities that I'm working on in a given financial year because I know so many of those are going to fall off we're going to qualify out of those deals before they actually turn into something tangible
1: yeah and I think we talk about this a lot but we're talking to a breadth of sales people breath of type mm-hmm. of sales seller so if you're an inside rep you might have a meeting goal you might have a get to 20% handoff kind of goal Whatever that goal is, you're going to need a big bucket of these prospects, this, this prospect number that you can go after and go get. And, it, and none of us have enough. We'd all like better leads or good leads, um, all kinds of stories around leads. But the best way to create that, but that very first stage of the f- sales funnel is for you to do some of your work, find out what is possible, whether it's industries or whether it's total sales opportunities, and figure out how you're going to get that. And then once you have that, that should guide you throughout the rest of the year, maybe a quarter. I have some stuff. What I did this year was I put three, four columns. I thought, what could I get in Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4? Because I knew that stuff that had really my customer had no knowledge of this technology. I was going to have to do two or three quarters worth of education to have a shot at a small opportunity in Q4, but even was thinking out next year, if I got my foot in the door, how could that thing grow? Um, I say it's probably been 18 months ago that I I read a book when I kind of was a sales manager midterm in the the Dell EMC merger, and it was called New Sales Simplified, and I'll put a link uh, in the show notes. It's a great book to give seasoned veterans and then new sellers a way to think about how do you go find those new opportunities. It's not like a new sales rep opportunity book. It's more about here's the things you should be doing. Here's how you should block time on your calendar. And it's really a good book. Uh, I I appreciated what all it taught me. A few cheat sheets you can cut out of that book. Uh, I highly recommend it to anybody who's struggling with that prospecting world.
0: Yeah, it's like you said. We've got a number of listeners that are in the inside sales business right now, and we all we've all been there. We know how challenging that role can be because you're you're constantly in. You know, new prospect pursuit mode all the time. And what's really good about that book is it talks a lot about selecting strategic accounts. So if you're in inside sales or if you're in, a, you know, an, even an outbound sales role to where you're targeting kind of a huge swath of, of prospective customers, uh, the book talks a lot about selecting strategic target accounts that give you the best chance of winning. Um, so even if you're in the middle of a fiscal year or if you're about to start a new fiscal year, sometimes it can be refreshing to just take a step back and, and, and being thoughtful. Am I, am I targeting the right sets of accounts? Am I investing my time in the right areas?
1: Yeah. I like that a lot. And you made me think about something, you know, if you, if you took out, I'll use a triathlon example, cause you're a triathlete. If I wanted to run my first triathlon, well, let's even change it to a marathon. Cause we both experienced this. If yep. I'm going to run my first marathon. How about I pick one in the hilliest city in the state of Texas, which is what we did. We ran Our first marathon was in Austin. If you're not familiar with Austin, I don't remember what the grade was, but we was climbed ridiculous. a lot of hills and we ran down a lot of hills, but none of the down was ever going to overcome the, the up. Um, but it's, it's, it's pretty similar in the prospecting world, right? If you could really get smart and that first marathon of ours would have been like all downhill. That would have been awesome. It would have been a much easier first one, and we probably would have ran it a whole lot faster, and it maybe made our goal. But I think that's a good way to point out prospecting. I see it all the time where a rep or a specialist will say, "Dude, they asked me for a quote. It's it's such a qualified opportunity." But my experience says you probably have no shot at that deal. Now we talked about this in territory planning a little bit too. I'm still gonna probably give them a quote. I'm still gonna try and get my foot in the door. But the level of effort is going to be minimized drastically. So I think in the prospecting mindset of all sellers, if you could deduce the the good ones to a small bucket and get the bad ones into a bigger bucket that you're not going to focus on or spend little itty-bitty amounts of time on, you're going to find better better prospects to spend time with, for sure. No question.
0: You are. And then you, you let's say that you're you're gonna target a certain industry. Uh, ideally, target an industry that you have a lot of collateral and marketing material built around, and, and you can maximize your efforts too. So if you if you decide, I'm gonna go after media, the media industry, and I'm gonna target 20 accounts, 20 prospects in the media space, think about how much more effective you could be, and you're not having to build a campaign out for each specific customer. While you're gonna make it unique for each specific you know prospect or customer, you're going to be able to rinse and repeat some things uh, to make more efficient use of your time. No doubt. And that, that kind of segues
1: into the next point. We, we all should be blocking out time for prospecting. I'm sure most companies have some level of culture that Monday or Friday is either a, an internal day or a catch-up day. I try not to block two days of my calendar for, for non-customer time. But I try to spend my Monday right after lunch doing some prospecting and it's not easy. It's painful. It's the thing that most of us hate to do the most. But what I try to do is I try and use my uh, keeping in touch mindset and just reach out to some people that have no opportunities, have no plan to create opportunities, but just touch base, see how they're doing. Sometimes that's email. Sometimes that's phone. Uh, Maybe I reach out to partners. Maybe I try and coordinate some time with my specialists, but I try to spend at least two hours on Monday afternoon doing some sort of prospecting. And it's surprising how much that time uncovers, it not necessarily uncovers the next million dollar deal, but it uncovers activity, it uncovers the next lunch, or it uncovers the next uh, round table with a partner that, that that those those times create the pipeline and the, the prospects that I'm looking for. How about you, Brian? How do you think about prospecting and or that prospecting time?
0: Yeah, it's got to be intentional. It's got to be time blocked on your calendar. I think, uh, again, that is the worst part, in my opinion, about a sales position but it's what makes a great seller a great seller is somebody that can develop pipeline while closing pipeline. That's that's like the um, that's the uh, ace that everyone's looking for, someone that has the experience. And, Bobby, if you're hearing a little bit of overhead noise, you know that the flight pattern in Windsor has uh, a, lot of fl- a lot of planes going overhead, so we're getting a lot of that today.
1: Yeah, let's be clear. That's not just like a small airport. That is <laughs> London Heathrow Airport that Brian Road. lives
0: about five miles away from, so... Uh,
1: pretty interesting.
0: Yes. So so, sales managers, companies, um, if, you, if you can prove that you can develop pipeline while closing pipeline, you are the ace everyone's looking for. Now, to, to get there, you've got to be very intentional about when you do this. If it's set for... Uh, Tuesday morning, you got to block that time off. And even sometimes if there's like a really important meeting that you want to get done, unless it's a course, that deal you're trying to get closed or something, it's, you've got to be very deliberate about keeping that time open on your calendar. Uh, Otherwise it's going to be the first thing to get kicked off of your calendar. And if you leave it to something that's not on your calendar, I don't know if you're, if you're anyone like me, then, then if it's not on your calendar, it's not going to get done period.
1: No doubt. And I think that It is always the first thing that falls off because none of us like it, Um, but it is surprising once you have a little bit of momentum in that time,
0: uh, you'll find that you won't give it up. You know what I find works well too is um, getting uh, groups together, two people together, it's always harder for us to cancel if we're dependent on something else. We talked about the triathlon piece of it. Bobby, how much easier is it to, you know, if, if you weren't doing that Austin marathon, I probably wouldn't have done that first Austin marathon either. So we no had doubt. some kind of joint dependency on it. What I find works well too, is uh, if it's partnering with your inside sales rep, with your outbound sales rep, uh, somebody you know is a top prospector and just block off a, a Tuesday morning or a Wednesday afternoon and work together for two hours. Maybe you share an in- industry that you're working together in and set some time together to say, okay, let's build some messaging to go target these prospective customers with. No doubt. And prospecting can't just be
1: emailing. Let's be clear. You know, today's world, people like text, people like email, they like a lot of different ways to communicate. I talk to IT directors, CIOs, VPs all the time. Not a, I only know one. I only know one of them. And I'm actually taking him to the base, him and his wife to the baseball game tonight. He is the only VP of IT that I know that picks up his phone for everybody. It's just mm. an it's an old school thing, but it's very appreciated on this side. And he's a very candid guy, so he probably doesn't waste a lot of time on the phone. But you got to pick up the phone. You got to make some phone calls. You got to leave those voicemails. You got to have them see that you're calling them. You got to make it at different times during the day. I still call people at 6 p.m. I still call people first thing in the morning when I wake up um just to just to throw off that that timing a little bit and then i will tell a story about a demand gen effort that i made that was kind of prospecting in just a second but what are your thoughts in the year 2018 Brian on using the phone
0: well again it's another one of those things to where everyone hates it but if you're let's say your job is dependent on it let's say you're in inside sales um you you're not going to get by as you, you know i don't have to tell anybody that's in inside sales that they can't get by just on email but what I what I find works best is that Inside Sales is one of those jobs that is very much it's leveraged more towards science than art. So so given that, go find the best one or two people in Inside Sales at your respective company or you know somebody that you know on LinkedIn that has a similar type job that you know is incredibly successful they have figured out what that science is, go figure out that science from them too. Because every product is gonna be different. Every service is gonna be different. What works in one industry may not work in another industry. So go talk to the people that are incredibly successful. So to Bobby, to answer your question, you you can't survive without it. Even if you are in outbound sales and you have a, a team of inside salespeople, you're still gonna have an opportunity that you're trying to qualify, that you need to be able to up level. Maybe you're starting at the finance director that you need to get up to the CFO that's going to require a phone call. That's going to require a a well-articulated message.
1: And I've been a part of a lot of sales teams with different territories, few companies, lots of different teams, lots of different segmentations, and everybody wishes they could get the perfect meeting with the perfect person in the company that would be interested or could have interest in their product. And and, and most reps would say that's worth, you know, thousands of dollars, that meeting, if if I execute on it well. Well, go back and listen to series one on how to execute on that first meeting very well. But that meeting to me is worth a few hundred bucks. Uh, if I can get that meeting with the right targeted person, maybe in the right industry, maybe at the with the right functional role inside of a company, and I've done some creative things. I think one of the best campaigns that, that I've ever done that was cost effective, but very, 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 I don't know, it was 100% I, I, is I bought... And no, nobody on this podcast will probably remember, but Microsoft had something called a Zune. Let's say that was four years after the iPod and looked a really lot like an iPod. And they don't make them anymore. But I have a few classic versions in my drawer somewhere. They're collectors now, Bobby. Yes, yes. So the Zune was a, a new new thing. Microsoft put their foot in the door and tried to tried to come out with a music player. But what I did was I went out and I bought 20, 20 Zune cases. Um, of course, I expensed them. They were probably all $20 each. Put them in a FedEx envelope with a letter to addressed to the CIO of some of 20 under-penetrated accounts that I couldn't get into in a commercial type role. So I put the letter and I put the Zoom cover in it and pretty much at the end of the day, the letter said, if you'll give me 30 minutes of your time, I'll bring you a, a Microsoft Zoom to put in this case and you, you'll have a Zoom. And it was enough to grab people's attention. All 20 of those people got back in touch with me. Those are people I had been cold calling. Those are people that I had been emailing. And that Zoom campaign worked. I've heard many other ideas like the remote control or the controller of a remote control plane or a drone or those sorts of things. I think you got to keep it simple. I do think FedEx is a great way because someone has to sign for that stuff. Um, And the entry level, the entry cost for me was $20 per customer. But I had to go buy 20 zooms after that. But I got sure. 20 meetings with CIOs for the equivalent of 250 bucks. Uh, it was a very valuable process for me. I don't know if you have an idea of something like that you've done or seen in the past, but you've got to be creative in your demand generation to find those prospects and to find the right people.
0: Yeah. The, you know, if you just do the simple, simple math, uh, what's the gross profit your company earns off of a single deal? Uh, How much are they paying you if you break your salary down to a per day basis? I mean, I I can, every job I've ever worked for the first six months, you know, where you're kind of still trying to, we talked about this from a career development standpoint to where you're still trying to earn your, your, earn your salary, earn your job. So I always have that mathematics uh, done as to what I'm costing that company every single day. But if, if you're having unproductive days, unproductive weeks, not bringing in gross margin versus the cost of I don't know what's what does a Zoom cost back then? One hundred and fifty bucks, probably. I think there two hundred. The case is probably two hundred. I mean, that's it's less than your salary for the day, far less than your salary for the day. The gross profits that you'd earn at Microsoft for getting a bigger true up or adding on BizTalk to a deal was, uh, you know, a ten thousand x return. I mean, it's a, it's a massive return. So, so I think about it a lot that way. I I try to do nice restaurants that tends to be, you know, everyone has to eat, everyone has to eat a nice lunch. So I try to find a, a really nice restaurant near their office and I'll let them know, Hey, I've got reservations for four and I've got two prospective customers joining me and our vice president of uh, product strategy. You know, would you like to join us? Um, so I try to make them very easy, low barrier of entry. I, I tend to try to find stuff that's in or around their office because I personally don't like to kind of go out of the way. I don't like to do evening events. I try to find stuff that's kind of during the day, but everyone's, uh, everyone responds to stuff a little different though.
1: Yeah. So the, I guess next demand gen we'll, we'll talk through a little bit, but th- that is those type of events, right? And I've heard some creative ones lately. I live in Houston, uh, you know, I've, I've had a gun range event. I've had a skeet shooting event. I've obviously yep. been to, to golf many places with customers. There's a few fishing trips going on right now, spring, early summer on the bay. Trout are running through, through Galveston right now. Uh, any of those things are, are, are an opportunity, but I find it more often than not today that customers are going to a lot less of those type of events, and we've got to be creative. They've got to be worth their time. I had, a, I had a customer tell me, and I do this, so I ask them a lot, what would get you out of the office? What would have you come? And recently, uh, a, a CIO told me, you know, I want something that's going to benefit my career at this point. And if you guys had a speaker at a luncheon that was going to benefit me, I would get up and I would come to that event. And it, it wasn't a product demonstration speaker. It was someone... That would benefit their career, and they they brought up a couple people that they had heard speak in the past. Uh, If I could get Malcolm Gladwell to an event, I bet I could get a lot of customers to that event. We talked about the author of the Challenger Sale. Yeah, those type bigger names would be people that definitely customers customers would come to. So yeah, and and
0: there are there are a ton of sorry Bob there there are a ton of these type of people. Like so, Bobby, you and I are big fans of Ryan Holiday as well. He lives in Austin, Texas. Before Ryan Holiday became a guy that can draw $20,000 a day for, uh, for his time, he was a prime person to have uh, do an event for. These people exist in every market that you're in. They're like kind of a maybe a second tier or a third tier type author. They're available. They want to promote and sell more of their books or whatever it is that you know, consulting services they sell. These are also, it's a, it's a great idea, Bobby. It's, those are great people to draw customer events to no doubt and if it's not an author there's a lot of other people that are industry experts
1: and those sorts of things that I think customers would come see so enough on prospect for the day Brian let's jump right into qualify so qualify is a little bit more scientific for me probably you as well on at what point or at this point I'm gonna decide really is it a real opportunity or a fake opportunity now that doesn't mean the customer saying yes I'm gonna buy your products from you but it, it, it kinda is the budget, timeline, need kind of thing, right? Um, So at this point, I want to start asking some of those questions and start getting some of those answers to those questions. Too often, I think uh, it's clear, a guy gets asked to do a quote, and what happens when he gets asked to do that quote, Brian?
0: Just whip it up as quick as he possibly can, wants to be responsive, wants to show that he's on the ball and a hardworking guy or gal. Is that a qualified opportunity? Oh, of course. I mean, it's qualified so far that it's going to burn a bunch of your time. Exactly. And it's going to, you're going
1: to grind and waste a lot of time on those more often than not. So while it is an opportunity, there's a few things you can do to qualify it. Now, maybe not so much in the RFP world. And I get asked this question uh, by reps from time to time. And just got an email the other day from one of our listeners. You know, how much effort should I put into an RFP that gets dropped in my inbox? You know, RFPs are a way for customers to do their due diligence and and have the vendors do a bunch of work normally. But if you weren't involved in the pre-work for that RFP, you're probably way behind the game. Doesn't mean you should take a shot, but it would be in that bucket of not good prospects probably, instead of in that bucket of really good prospects.
0: It Definitely. I have had... I I was just talking to one of my peers about this just last week. I have... We've had so many RFPs kind of dropped in our lap, and we've had so many RFPs that we've helped to create ourselves. And I can, I can list on one hand over three years how many deals I've won on an RFP that we didn't personally handwrite or didn't have handle major portions of their RFP. It's risky. It's a risky investment of your time. Uh, it's certainly not qualified. There's certainly a lot of uh, trades that I would want to make to measure uh, how qualified this, could, this really is.
1: Yeah, and I also hear reps say, well, I just won't put my best foot forward, I won't do all the hard work, and then uh, we'll see if we can't win it, maybe we'll, we'll do a low ball price. That ain't gonna get the win, right? It's almost deciding, am I gonna put 120% effort into this one that I didn't get asked didn't get asked to help right and, and really take a shot at winning it? Or am I just not gonna respond? Look, not responding is okay.
0: Yeah, and, and, you, and you have to be okay with giving up some that you might lose. Um, that you might have won, I'm sorry. So, for example, there was, a, there was a deal that I was adamantly saying, Bobby, we did not need to respond to this RFP. We have been brought into a deal that's being influenced by another vendor. We are column fodder here. We are wasting our time. We should not be involved. I We, we still press forward. Uh, The account executive still pressed forward, filled out the RFP, did the demonstrations. I was a little bit kind of kicking and screaming through the process, admittedly, and we turned around and won that deal. And that's a deal I would have lost. um, Nine times out of 10, I would have lost that deal. So you have to be okay with knowing that there, you know, it's scientific in that you have to know that there are going to be some areas that you have lost deals that you could have potentially won. But you have to know that you're investing your time in the right kind of deals, so those are going to be far and few between. No, no question. So for me,
1: I, I believe, and I shared this with a mentee recently, that the qualify stage is where I start my work back plan and reverse timeline. And if a customer doesn't want to participate in that reverse timeline or work back plan at that stage, I I would say we're way behind the eight ball on that that opportunity so what does that mean that means if a customer says they'd like to see my product they'd like to see a demo they you know i see this opportunity they want a quote i start working through what happens after that i don't just go to that next step of doing the demo or creating the quote i'll say okay once we do that if that's successful what would be the next step in your process we would want to demo it or we'd want to We'd want to prove a proof of concept of this product on, on site okay how long would that have to last for you and of course i'm abbreviating this process a little bit but of course I, i'm building this timeline and I, I try to build it at a 30000 foot view at this point Well, i'd like five four or five stages steps in this okay you want me to do the demo then you're going to want to prove a proof of concept then you're going to run that proof of concept for 30 60 days okay if that proof of concept successful I assume we will have already been out in front of contracts, budget, all those things, right? Yep. Okay. And then you'll buy it by what? And they always say, well, we're not going to commit to when we're going to buy it. And I tell people, you can still get a timeline. Is that this year or next year? Well, it's a next year thing. Okay. So by December, 2019, you're going to buy my product if those five steps occur in a good way. True or false? True. And this is probably a low level person. We've had that conversation, but I'm going to, replay that back to them and get them to agree to it in an email before I do that first step that they're asking me for. Whether it's build a quote or do a demo. And the, the goal there is to get them to say, yeah, I'm engaged. And if, if they're not power, at least they're engaged. And once they're engaged, I'll do that first step. But the first Little chink in that timeline that we agreed to, right? Let's get the proof of concept out here. Ah, we don't have time to do a proof of concept right now. We're a little busy. I would say that's an unqualified opportunity, and I won't let a, I won't let an opportunity that I'm managing leave that sales stage until we get through that second step of a reverse timeline or a workback plan.
0: Yeah, it's it's a, that's a great example, and I, and, and so let, let's further that example. So what I often get, Bobby, is a um, customer kind of says especially if we think we're kind of being brought to a table that's being led by another vendor. Uh, the, the customer would say, yeah, what we're planning to do is, um, you know, we want to we see, you know, we want to demo, then we kind of want to get our hands on it and, and test it out and see how it looks and feels with us driving it. And then we're going to put together a little bit of business case internally, and then we're going to take this to the CFO, and we're going to bring them three options. And the CFO is going to pick uh, ultimately, and they're, they're going to be the ones that sign off on it. But we're going to bring him or her uh, three options, and so you know, like you said, Bobby, you're kind of measuring through this entire process what's working for you and what's not going to work for you. That's one that doesn't work for me ever. If if we're in the position to where we're blindly going to be put in front of a CFO to make a decision on our products purely based on price, where there's you know there's no way you can translate value on a one paper, you know a one slide PowerPoint presentation or a fifty slide PowerPoint presentation. So I guess my point of is is, you've got to really rationalize their process and their intentions to take you through from beginning to end, and then start to challenge it and say, "Look, I, I'm in with you. I want to demo this product to you. I want to go out next week and demo this product to you. But here's what we got to do first: we got to do some discovery first. Let's get that on the let's get that on the books. How about next Tuesday at three o'clock? You know, Get their buy-in for that. Okay, let's let's get the demo in after that. We need about a week and a half, two weeks to prepare the demo for you following discovery. Okay, let's, let's do that. Let's get that on the calendar. Okay, it's going to be important that your CFO, since he or she needs to see three options, the pricing for it, it's going to be important that he or she sees our demonstration. And if I get them bought in all the way to that point and that's a no, I'm out. So I, you got to think about every step of this and how can you influence this process to uh, and then, really, it's it's kind of a pre-qualification for you to know how you're going to stand in the at, when it comes down to actually uh, winning or losing this deal.
1: Yeah, I, I would uh, include a little bit that we we again know there's all kinds of different sellers out there. So uh, yep. if you if this is just scary as scary can be, think. From the perspective of the buyer how do you buy stuff and i guarantee you if you put yourself in the buyer's shoes they would need to get buy-in from the decision maker before they could pull the trigger so make that one of your four or five steps even if it's a small deal can we have the person that's going to write the check be in the third meeting something to that effect where you're putting access to power as part of this qualify stage and then when you find out that they're not going to give you access
0: to power run from that deal. You were never, ever going to win. No doubt. So, so Bobby, I think uh, the things I talk about, I think about first are, are they open to my approach and my process? And there's, there's a great excerpt from the book, the new sales simplified book. And I'll just I'll run through it real quick. It says, when I hear a salesperson talk about presentation, I've learned to ask a series of questions. What kind of discovery work have we done? To whom are we presenting? What do we know about them? that is the people we're presenting to, why are we being asked to present this? And disappointingly, he says, this is Mike, the author, the response he regularly gets is that the process that the prospect has asked the sales team to present a set of capabilities overview, and we've agreed to it. They've not done any sort of discovery. They can't answer the questions, but these are such critical blocking and tackling things. And this doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're selling uh, printers or... Uh, high-end server equipments or ERP systems, Uh, if you're not doing some kind of basic discovery, basic qualification, running some tests, running some traps in it, you're going to waste time on a deal that you could never win in the first place. To that point, Brian, I hear reps always
1: complain, that's just too much to try and understand before I go do that first demo. But I would also say that's the biggest reason why they're chasing and watering a bunch of dead plants because they're not doing those few steps. And their bucket of bad opportunities is huge, but that's not good. You need a smaller bucket of great opportunities. So in episode one, I talked about what if we could take the 100 calls to 10 meetings to two wins to something more like 100 calls that gets 20 meetings that turns into eight deals, right? That's what this qualify stage can do for your funnel. And it's going to do tremendous things for your commission checks as well.
0: And it's going to feel risky, and it will be risky. Actually, You're, in fact, I gave you the example of the deal that if we had not pursued, we would, I would have walked away from it. We would have lost. You have to be okay with some of those. You're going to leave some of these out on the table, but it's mathematically going to work out much better in your favor to be a bit more um, careful about which ones you pursue. And you don't have to, you don't have to pepper the customer with like like an interrogator. You don't have to give them the third degree. You know, I give the, I talk about this all the time with the team. And I, I say, you know, I, I, I kind of come off more difficult or challenging when I'm internal than I do external. When I'm talking to the customer or the prospect, I'm saying, I want to show you the demo. I want to engage in this process. I want to earn your business. But here's the conditions in which we have to do it. I need to do some discovery. I need to, You know, Bobby, you, you talked about the timeline. When are you going to buy it? Like, tell me about the last time you did a project like this. You know how long you know how long does what kind of what does the the approval process look like? You know who internally has influence over a project like this. You don't have to be an interrogator like they're a prisoner here, but you need to you need to get some some questions answered.
1: I will also say to that point, you don't have to ask all these questions one right after another. Yep. Once you get good at, at using a sales process and managing yourself to these stages and the things that you want to accomplish in each stage you can accomplish some of these things outside of their stage. So maybe when you find the prospect, in the prospect first conversation, you can talk about timeline, although it really is the part of the qualify stage. Those, those can be spattered around, but the key is if I don't have a path to a work back plan or a reverse timeline, I won't move a deal from qualify to the next stage. And it's critical. And people all the time will say, oh, this deal's about to close. And I'll go say, you talk to power, and they'll say, no, not yet. But we're going to in the, in the close meeting. I'll be like, well, you're probably not going to close this deal in the timeline that you think it's going to close. Yep. And so this, anything goes else? For,
0: yeah, this goes for whether you're selling, let's say you're brand new at CDW uh, or SHI, and you're selling replacement printer ink for a new customer for CWSHI, you still need to know, hey, if you're gonna make a switch on this, who, you know, is is this something that you kind of make your decision on your own for? Do you, or does this need to run up the chain to someone? Do you make this decision purely based off price? This goes for a product purchase that could be uh, $200 or $2 million. But you know, of course, on the lower end, you're going to have a, a smaller series of an interrogation type questions, but you need to have, what is that list? What does a qualified opportunity look for you? And the best way to do that is to talk to your successful peers and understand in what circumstances do they win and try to mimic those circumstances in your own sales process.
1: The sales process can be four sheets of paper long with 30,000 questions, or it can be a single sheet with 12 questions, but find that process, follow that process, and up to qualify, just have a few questions, understand their buying process, and have some sort of a timeline so that you can see when that opportunity starts falling out of that timeline. So let's call it there on qualify. We've talked about uh, prospect and qualify. We've shared a couple books. We'll put them in the show notes. We'd ask you to click through and buy them from our site to support the Bobby and Brian website and the Tech Sales Show. We'd greatly appreciate it. Next week, we're going to jump into develop and solution stages three and four of the sales process that Bobby and Brian follow. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate you listening. Please tell a friend about our podcast. And until next week, I'll say thank you. And don't forget, average is the enemy. Thanks, everyone.
0: Thanks for listening to the Tech Sales Show with Bobby and Brian. Subscribe to their email list by going to bobbyandbrian.com and follow them on Twitter at Bobby Brian Sales.